Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's meeting at the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. I'm Kathy Curtis, chair of the Food Matters Forum of the Commonwealth Club of California and today's host. Today's program is entitled A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs and Healthy Food. And I want to welcome our live audience and also our radio and online audience. Now to introduce our speakers. Bob Quinn is a progressive leader in promoting organic and sustainable agriculture. He is an organic farmer near Big Sandy, Montana, and a leading green businessman. His enterprises include the ancient-grade business Kamut International and Montana's first wind farm. Bob introduced Kamut and ancient Egyptian wheat to the natural foods industry way back in 1986. Now thousands of different Kamut Corazon brand products are being marketed through the world, providing a sustainable crop for many organic farmers. Liz Carlisle is a lecturer in the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences at Stanford University. She holds a Ph.D. in Geography from UC Berkeley and a B.A. in Folklore and Mythology from Harvard University, and she formerly served as Legislative Correspondent for Agricultural and Natural Resources in the office of U.S. Senator John Tester. In addition to Grain by Grain, she is the author of Lentil Underground, winner of the 2016 Montana Book Award. And I want to make a shout out here to the midwife and the baker in Mountain View who provided that delicious bread that we all were able to taste before the program. Thank you for that. Okay, and help me to welcome Liz and Bob. Thank you so much, Kathy. Um, I am Liz, um, and I'll just be up here briefly because um, you want to hear this straight from the farmer. Um, but first, I want to share one statistic and one story. So I teach environmental studies, and when I find myself on the train and somebody next to me asks, you know, what do you do? And I say, well, I teach environmental studies. They get this kind of horrified look on their face like, I don't think I want to be in this conversation Um, because there are a lot of really dire environmental challenges that we're facing in our world now. Um, But I'm really lucky. I get to work on the bright spots, which is regenerative organic agriculture. And there's a lot of reasons to be really excited about regenerative organic agriculture. It is one of our major opportunities to mitigate climate change, sequester carbon, adapt to a new reality with climate change, also to clean up our soil and our air and our water, to restore biodiversity, um, to bring more healthful food to people. There's this great synergy between diverse farming systems and diverse diets. Um, But there's another reason we want to be really excited about it, too, and that's the statistic I want to share, which is around the economic potential of regenerative organic agriculture. There was a study done in 2016 by an agricultural economist named Edward Janicki. And what Janicki did is he looked at counties with high levels of organic agriculture that also neighbored counties with high levels of organic agriculture. So he found 225 counties that met this definition in the U.S., and these were the organic hotspots. And then he compared these counties, he looked at their county-level economic data and compared them to counties that were similar in other respects, except for how much organic agriculture was going on. And what he found was that being an organic hotspot meant two things. 
It meant that median incomes in those counties were up over $2,000 a year on an annual basis. And it meant that county, county poverty rates were 1.35% lower. So organic agriculture, in addition to being this incredible environmental bright spot and health bright spot, it's also an economic bright spot in many areas of rural America that really most need it right now. And so that brings me to my story, because this incredible economic bright spot also can create some surprising alliances. So a little over a decade ago, um, as Kathy mentioned, I was working in the office of U.S. Senator John Tester. I was a fresh-faced, new congressional staffer full of idealism and hope and will to, you know, create a better world. And I also had an awful lot to learn because I was doing correspondence with constituents on agriculture and natural resources, which encompasses an awful lot of issues. And so I was learning so much every single day. And I was lucky to have a mentor in the office, Matt Jennings, who knew an awful lot more than I did about all those things and was willing to answer my questions. So one day I got a question from a constituent about the potential for wind energy in Montana. And so I went over to Matt's desk and I said, what do you know about wind energy in Montana? I need to answer this constituent's question. And Matt was one of these folks who tends to answer in just a few syllables, <laughs> very succinct, um, and also very much a Socratic teacher who wanted me to go ask these questions on my own. So we just said, Bob Quinn, you need to learn about Bob Quinn. And he pulls up this picture on his computer of this guy in a cowboy hat uh, with some grain in the brim standing in front of a wind turbine. And so my curiosity was piqued, and, and he piqued it even more by saying, this guy is one of the only people that's really serious about building a 21st century economy. So I went back to my workstation, and I Googled Bob Quinn, and I found the picture of him standing in front of the wind farm. And I found a lot of other things, too. I found that he had been one of the pioneers of organic agriculture in the U.S., had served on the first National Organic Standards Board, which created what we now know as the USDA organic label, and had all those really difficult conversations about what those standards would look like. Um, he'd won Lifetime Achievement Awards from groups like the Rodale Institute, um, so really somebody who'd been very involved in both regenerative agriculture and renewable energy. But as I was reading these stories, I also saw that at several of these big events that he'd been involved in, um, there had been Republican members of Montana's delegation. Um, his name was coming up in a lot of associations with these Republican Congress people and Republican people in the state legislature. And I was kind of puzzled by that because as this staffer in a Democratic Senate office, I kind of thought my whole job was supposed to be promoting more Democratic leadership. And here was this guy who was all mixed up with Republicans. So I had a chance to actually talk about this with my boss, Senator John Tester, and I was curious to ask him, because John Tester is from Big Sandy, Montana, and so is Bob Quinn. They're from the same small town in Montana, and I wanted to hear from Senator Tester how he felt about all these Republican associations of this guy who I'd been told it was really somebody we should be collaborating with. <laughs> So I got a moment with Senator Tester when it was just us, and we were walking down the hall to meet a, a group of school kids. And I said, what do you think of Bob Quinn? 
And he said more or less what my mentor in the office had said, you know, this is such a leader in the green economy and moving us towards really a better future for Montana that's not just extractive industry, but it's really regenerative. Um, and I said, well, you know, it looks like he, he might have some Republican associations. Is he a Republican? And Senator Tester was kind of laughed and smiled. He said, oh, you know, his dad was really active in Republican politics when we were young. And he's probably voted for some Republicans, but I think he voted for me. And he kind of smiled. And, um, you know, I wasn't quite satisfied with that answer. And he could tell that. And so um, he, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Liz, you know, the biggest challenge that I'm up against here in D.C., trying to work towards a, a green economy is not Republicans. I have differences of opinion with my Republican colleagues, and we don't see the world you know, quite the same way. But really what I'm up against, and the reason I got into politics, is multinational corporations that have a stranglehold on energy and agriculture and don't give a lick about the hardworking Montanans who earn their livelihoods in those industries. And so I think what we need to do is create our own economic opportunity in regenerative agriculture and renewable energy. And that's what Bob Quinn is doing. So I learned a really important lesson that day that I think, um, I think about all the time in the polarized environment that we're in right now in this country with the incredible challenges we face environmentally and economically. Um, and it was such a pleasure, uh, such an honor, um, you know, almost a decade later to run into Bob Quinn at a farm tour and have him ask me if he wanted to work on a book together. So with that introduction, I'm very, very pleased to introduce you to my friend, Bob Quinn. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Liz. I'm, I'm the lucky one, actually. I tried to write a book for five years. I got turned down at one of um, uh, my favorite publishers. They said you had to have an agent. I didn't know that. Um, anyway, Liz was able to do in five months what I couldn't do in five years, and I wouldn't be here today without her help, and I appreciate it very much. How many here are, um, how many here are farmers or ranchers or hope to be someday? Okay, two of us. Okay, three. I see. Uh, great. I want you, the rest of you, to think about the fact that actually you are also just as much a farmer and rancher as we are. Because every time you go to the grocery store and put some food in your basket, every time you go out to eat at a restaurant and order a meal, every time you go home and cook a meal, you're really creating what um, Wendell Berry calls an agricultural act. Um, Carlo Petrini said it this way. He's uh, the founder of Slow Food in, um, in Italy. He said eaters who are not farmers are really co-producers of food because what you eat really affects what I produce. If you didn't eat it, I wouldn't grow it. Um, it has to go through the, through the system, right? That makes us really partners in ways that sometimes today we don't think about and in ways that are still very, very important. Well, when I was growing up in um, northern Montana on a wheat and cattle ranch, uh, we had uh, about 2,400 acres. We're half wheat, half cattle. And um, I loved farming. I didn't start out driving a combine, however. I started out 
uh, more like this. This is my first tractor. You know, most guys will show you their first car, but this is my first tractor. Um, and my job was to pull a, a um, cart of fertilizer and spread fertilizer on the, on the, uh, on the fields. And I didn't think anything about that. That's just what we did. Um, I didn't question it. I didn't um, think it was terrible or, or anything else about it. But I grew up being taught that wheat actually was the staff of life. And we felt really good about growing that. But now, 20% of the people in this country can't eat wheat anymore and enjoy it. They get some kind of a malady, and it's, and it's real. Um, so I'm thinking perhaps the staff of life is broken. And I want to know why. why. What broke it? And why is it this way? After thousands of years, the grain that built the ancient civilizations of Babylon, of Greece, of Rome, even Egypt, now all of a sudden um, is not fit to eat. This is um, something, we've taken the wrong turn somewhere. And so I started really investigating that. that so the, the science in me came out. I went to school and studied botany and plant pathology at Montana State and then on to UC Davis and um, got a PhD in plant biochemistry. And then I moved back to the farm. And so I really have a lot of love for science, but I have more love for growing plants. And so that's why I ended up back at the farm. But after studying the problem, I think that really it lies in three main areas, not just one thing. Uh, first of all, production of the grain. How do we grow it? on the farm. Secondly, how do we process it to make bread and to process it in milling? And thirdly, how, are those, how have those seeds been changed um, from what they were before we started breeding for certain goals? The main goal, of course, was high yields. Um, when I moved back, and here we are in Woodland, California, but my folks brought down a, a drain truck. We loaded that up, and I don't know how many of you have moved, but it doesn't all fit, right? It never all quite fits. So we had to, had to do a U-Haul in addition. And I moved my family, my wife, and my um, three daughters at that time back home to the farm, family farm. My grandfather started in 1920, so next year will be our centennial year. So I was really excited to come back to the farm. I never came home with the idea that I was going to try to change the food system in any way. As far as I was concerned, it was pretty good the way it was. Um, we had made a good living growing up. When I got back to the farm, something had changed. There was now two families on a farm that really comfortably supported one. And so that became a, a little bit of a um, challenge as um, commodity prices sometimes just took a dive and um, input costs for chemicals and fertilizers continued to rise. And so the squeeze area became even more apparent when we had two families now trying to, to make a living. I didn't really want to go to town and get a job because I came home to farm. And so I tried to figure out what could we do to add value to what we were doing. And I had an opportunity to start in 1983, Montana Flour and Grains. It was, so we started in a town quite near us, the county seat. And our goal was to sell our grain directly to whole grain bakers. And we, and, and we had, our first customer was in Southern California, Food for Life. And they started out buying a truckload a week of wheat. That was an enormous amount of wheat. It really um, changed our income status and um, helped us really um, start to put the farm back into the black and out of the red. A year after we got started, this, uh, our customer called up and he said, can you get me some organic wheat? And uh, I don't know how many of you are in business, but when a customer calls up, what do you say? 
Absolutely no problem. Be right on that. Hang up and then you say, where am I going to find organic wheat? I didn't know anything about organic. I didn't know any organic farmers. I'd been in Davis and a fellow, a friend of mine came up to me oh, halfway through the 70s when I was there telling me about this organic agriculture that's starting to occur in California. And I thought, well, that's a bunch of hooey. I said, I had been trained and I knew for sure that a plant couldn't tell the difference between a molecule of nitrogen coming out of a manure pile or a compost heap, whatever you might have, or one coming out of a bag of ammonium sulfate. And that's the way I'd been trained. And I believed that. And so I kind of discounted that um, because we looked at our farm as a little bit like an industrial model, a factory, if, if you will. We were <clears throat> taught and, sh- and shown by the experts how much fertilizer to put on. Everything was all measured out. And we were feeding the plants and taking care of the plants and made sure that they produce huge yields. Because that's what we got paid for, was um, the grain in the bin. Uh, the sad part was it wasn't very much for bushels. Um, so we had to have a lot of bushels for that to, 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 to pencil. Um, so I started meeting more and more organic farmers. And um, I was really impressed with the enthusiasm they had about their farm. That's not what I was used to in going to the Montana Grain Growers Association, where the focus was on how are we going to get more government programs and what are we going to do about this terrible price and on and on. And nobody talked about their farm, really, or or, um, showing interest in it and trying new things. And I found the organic community was quite different than that, and it started to pique my interest. I was really interested in trying for myself an organic experiment on our farm to see if it could really work in the in the northern plains of dry Montana. We get 12 to 14 inches of rain a year, and it falls mostly in May and June. It's perfect for um, growing winter wheat, and, and spring wheat is also grown there. It's a little bit of a lesser crop. But could we make organic work where we have to grow um, legumes and green manure crops? And my father was very um, uh, unconvinced. He thought it was way too risky. And uh, we started out with 20 acres. That was 1% of our farm. So he was okay with that. And um, we planted um, winter wheat side by side in uh, 20 acres that had been in alfalfa and had been uh, worked up and now was green manure and ready to seed. And 20 acres next to it was in our chemical model. And we fertilized them the same. So everything was as close to the same as we could get it. At harvest time, both fields produced with 37 to 38 bushels. It was almost identical in yield. The protein, which is the other thing we get paid for, and we are focusing on high protein in Montana, was both over 15%. One was like 15.2 and one was 15.4. Really almost um, uh, not statistically different. I was jubilant. My father was astounded. And he said, wow, Um, well, okay, you can go on. And so um, I started... Um, converting the whole farm to organic. And uh, within just two years, I don't recommend that to any of my friends. Um, it was kind of a crash program. But I was so enthused. I, the next year, we had a drought. And we had a terrible grasshopper plague. And so my organic field, I've, I've put um, a, pair, a, a protozoa on wheat bran and scattered it uh, on, the board, on the board of the field. And as the grasshoppers came in, they ate that. It was no Locima nucusta, and they would get sick. And when they got sick, all their friends came and ate them. 
How do you like that? I'd like to have friends like that, right? And anyway, because they did that, the disease spread throughout the entire group of grasshoppers, or the entire band, anyway, whatever they call a group of grasshoppers. And 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 they ate maybe 20 or 30 feet of the field, just down to almost nothing, but then they disappeared because they were dead. Um, My non-organic field, however, I sprayed, I called the spray plate in, and they took care of it with malathion. In an instant, everything was dead. And uh, they said, don't even go in the field for 24 hours. It's toxic. And um, so after a few days, I went and investigated. Sure enough, no more grasshoppers. I thought, okay, well, you know, that's modern science. And um, But then the next week, just maybe five days later, the grasshoppers kind of started back. And they came in hordes. And I thought, well, I can't afford to spray this. Again, it's very expensive, this insecticide. We normally don't do this. It was a, just a... a, um, a extreme case where we had to do something. And the grasshoppers came back and almost annihilated that field. And at harvest time, we got a very small yield, and the, grass, and the combine tank was full of grasshoppers, probably more grasshoppers than wheat. In my organic field, there's almost no grasshoppers in the combine tank, and we had a pretty decent yield for a drought year. So that was my last chemical experiment, although it, that was the way we farmed then. I didn't think about the experiment. I thought that's the way we did. And I never used any chemicals since. And that's thir- over 30 years ago. And I never looked back, and, and, I've, and by doing that, we were able to reduce the cost of our inputs. So now we were able to sell our output for more, reduce the cost of our inputs, and now we started um, really making money. And uh, we used to have an operating note, that was, operating note that was getting bigger and bigger. That all switched and, and reversed, and we got smaller and smaller. And after about three or four years, we no longer even needed an operating note. This is an enormous change economically for our farm. So I was thrilled about that. Um, so <clears throat> after 30 years, I continued my experimentation because we didn't learn it all at once. I kept trying new crops and new rotations and all kinds of um, different things related to organic agriculture. And what I've learned over that period of time, that organic agriculture is really based on the back of, of three of three principles, really. And, they're, and they're, if you look at nature... The closer we can mimic nature, the more regenerative our organic systems can be. Because when you look at nature, first of all, you don't ever see a monoculture in nature. You see great diversity. Even in the desert, there's diversity. In the, in the forest, there's diversity. There's just not trees. There's all kinds of understory, everything. In the prairie, the grasses, you might look across, oh, there's just grass. That's not true. If you look closely, there's all kinds of diversity of broadleafs and grasses and shrubs and everything. The other um, principle that's very crucial to make organic work is soil regeneration. So we're talking about now focusing on the soil and feeding the soil and making sure that there are, again, what we find in nature, we find lots of legumes in the mixes that are growing in all these different um, uh, regions. We mimic that by planting legumes in our rotation, and we turn the legumes then into the soil. So we feed the soil every other year. And our focus is on feeding the soil and not the plants, which is a completely different idea than what I have been taught my 10 years of university and even high school egg courses before then, that we always focus on giving the plant what we thought it needed and not really paying much attention to the soil, which was thought of something that just holds the plant up, right, and, and, and provides a little um, place where it can get water. 
without really appreciating the vitality and the role that the soil plays. If you have a healthy soil, you're going to have healthy plants. And it's just as simple as that. If you have healthy plants, you're going to have a healthy population that's eating those plants. So all those things are connected together. This is just to give you an idea of our rotation, how we try to duplicate um, diversity. We have a nine-year rotation now on our farm we've worked out. Uh, those um, lines in red are soil building years. We don't harvest those crops. Those crops are feeding the soil. In Montana, in the upper Great Plains, we normally only are able to grow one crop every two years because the second year we're saving the field to, uh, for the accumulation of water. We have so little rain and water that we can't grow a crop every year normally. So these green manure crops are terminated by the middle of June. So they go through the middle of the summer not really drawing any moisture out. But when they're really heavy, like the sweet clover and sometimes the alfalfa, and very, very thick, they can form a little bit of a mulch on top of the ground through the rest of the summer while the soil is feeding on them and, and breaking them down. The other, the cash crops, we tr- also try to vary with, with long season, short season, deep rooted, shallow rooted, um, uh, f- uh, broad leaf, narrow leaf, that sort of thing. So that they have lots of opportunities to break up cycles of diseases, of pests, and of weeds. And by breaking up the cycles, we're able to manage those without the use of chemical pesticides and herbicides, insecticides, and fungicides. So that's what we have Learn. So after all the experiments on my farm, I used to say that regenerative organic agriculture really has a future in this country and and in the world. And as I started traveling throughout the world and visiting organic farms on every continent and lots of them and seeing the success in every region of the world, I now say that regenerative organic agriculture is the future. It not only has a future, it is the future. And I say that because what we are involved in right now with the industrial chemical model is really on the skids. Uh, Farmers are going broke. They can't afford the chemicals anymore. We're having all kinds of of, um, questions on pollution. Uh, Small communities are going down in rural America, and we have health problems that are growing by leaps and bounds, particularly chronic diseases. And most, many of those can be linked to cheap food, which has been the goal of the industrial egg um, uh, model. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. There's a couple other things that I learned along the way, and that's how I look at my farm. When we had our Montana flour and grain, we started to go to the food shows. Um, the biggest one was in Anaheim, California, the Expo West, of it was called. I just attended there this last week. There are 80,000 people there. Um, that's way bigger than any of the uh, conventional food shows in America by several fold. Um, there's a lot of excitement. But in the early 1990s, it was quite a bit smaller. But we had a, a booth that we usually do there, and a lady came up to me one day and uh, shook my hand just really strongly and looked right in my eyes, and she said, thank you for growing food for my family. And I thought, wow, uh, no one ever thanked me for growing food for their family. Uh, as a commodity grower, I never really thought about growing food. We were growing commodities for the 
hall to the elevator. Nobody ever thanked me. I never, you know, commodity growers don't go to farmers markets. They don't know who their end customer is. Um, most of them are in Asia. Um, we don't think about that because most of what we grow is exported. Um, this is a, a, a experience I had never had before. And I went home and I never looked at my farm the same again. And from that day on, I never grew any more commodities. I never grew a commodity wheat, commodity anything. What I grew was good food for people and their families to be nourished by and to be enjoyed. And that's what I focused on. So that was a big, um, that was a big change for me and a big change of how I looked at my farm. Another change was, um, in some of our cropping, um, systems and, 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 and crops that we grew. We, and, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story of this in the, it's in the book if you want to read the details, but we came in contact with an ancient wheat and I carry it now in my hat because, um, in case I get hungry or, you know, um, uh, there's a terrible disaster and I have to start over with my seed supply. And, uh, it's, uh, an ancient grain that is very, very large and it was kind of a novelty in our county. And <clears throat> we, after some success, actually, uh, started to sell it under the brand Kamut. But it was a little bit of a, of a trip to get to that level. Our first experiment or for experience with it is when we went to our first food show in 1986 in Anaheim. My parents went with me. Um, my dad took a jar of this grain. We had 50 pounds in our shed, and he just showed it to everybody. And he was so proud of that and thought, sure, that people would be wanting it. My cousin and I... Uh, my cousin lived in Southern California, and we had a partnership of doing this business with the grain and flour, and that's what we were focusing on, uh, Montana wheat and Montana stone ground whole wheat flour. And at the end of the show, we had our pockets full of business cards and, and uh, leads. We were so excited. Uh, my dad had one business card and one lead, and he was quite excited. So because of that one lead, he, we went home and we planted all we had in half an acre in 1986. At that point, there was no, there were no products on the market. No one even knew what this was. Uh, and after 30 years, there are over 3,500 products on the market. Most of them are in Italy because that's where our biggest market is. And um, we contract with over 250 organic farmers to grow over 100,000 acres of this grain. So it has really grown enormously and been a huge success. One of the reasons that, it, well, there's a number of reasons it's been a success, but one of the things that struck me um, very strongly when we first got started was, first of all, the taste. It has a really nice nutty flavor, and um, we started out with some pasta, uh, that was made in Southern California, and we started handing it out. And uh, my dad gave some to Laura Smith, and she was a good friend of our family. She had terrible food allergies. She couldn't touch wheat uh, with a 10-foot pole hardly, and it'd make her sick just like that. And a lot of other foods did too, and she had environmental allergies. She couldn't go into a new house where there's formaldehyde in the carpets, which most people would hardly smell, debilitated her, so her muscles just gave out. So she was very, very sensitive. She would do um, muscle testing to see if foods, even in the grocery store, would be okay for her to eat because she never knew where the pesticide residues might be. And she, tr she tried um, her kinesiology on this um, um, pasta, and she thought maybe she could try it, eat it. She called my father up the next day, and she said, what is this stuff? 
She said, not only could I eat it, it made me feel better. I said, wow, well, we'll give you some more. And so we did. We gave her some more. And, um, and after she had been eating it for a while, she sent some to her sister who also couldn't eat wheat. And her sister uh, had lots of other allergies, or not allergies, but sensitivities to other foods that she avoided. And after eating this pasta for several um, days or a week or two, she was less allergic to other foods. And when that was reported to me, then my scientific um, brain started working again. And I thought, wow, how can this be? What is the difference? I mean, you, you look, it looks the same. It, it tastes a little better, okay, but it's what, what can be in this grain that's so different, affecting the people so different than modern wheat? Um, so I started doing some research. We couldn't really find um, good partners in America, but we did find some in, in Italy. I don't know how many of you have been to Italy or have Italian extraction, but if you can't eat pasta in Italy, this is not just an inconvenience, you see. They're not going to run out and look for gluten-free, wheat-free. They are going to figure out how they can, what, what they can do to fix that problem. And so we found researchers in Italy who were very interested in, in working with us. And uh, we started about 12 years ago, and now we have 31 peer-reviewed journal articles published in, in reputable journals, not behind the counter somewhere, or, or just online. These are, are leading journals throughout the world that have um, elucidated uh, and explained our experiments comparing modern and ancient wheat. And one of the earliest um, experience, experiments that we did was looking at um, anti-inflammatory or antioxidant capacity. It's, we knew our grain had higher levels of selenium than modern wheat. We know that's a strong antioxidant. So we started to look at that. We found it. We found that there was a, a big difference in antioxidant capacity. It was much higher in uh, folks who excuse me, ate the ancient wheat compared to the modern wheat. But we also found something we weren't looking for. And we found that it was actually anti-inflammatory. And um, there was a uh, then an idea that never had been reported in the literature before. So then we thought, well, if it's anti-inflammatory, we know that cr- all chronic disease is linked to inflammation. So we started then to focus on chronic disease. And we studied irritable bowel syndrome, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome. And, and now we're just finishing studies with fibromyalgia. These are double-blind crossover studies where volunteers with this disease um, eat either modern wheat or ancient wheat. They don't know what they're eating, so that's, that's why it's a blinded study. Sometimes about half the studies that the um, researchers didn't know what they were eating either, so that would make it double blind. They ate eight weeks of the, that diet, had an eight-week washout period, and they crossed over and ate the other diet. So we had an internal control. Um, and we found that the anti-inflammatory properties were by far the biggest difference. There are 30 to 45% difference. And there was also an increase in oxidant capa- antioxidant capacity. Cholesterol went down, blood sugar went down, insulin went down, insulin resistance went down, which is quite important with um, uh, diabetes, of course. And we also saw, in all cases, that blood, uh, magnesium, zinc, and calcium went up. So all these advantages that we had seen time after time were associated with this ancient grain and probably other ancient grains other than just ours and probably even heritage and heirloom wheats that haven't been uh, greatly modified by breeding. These are things that have been now lost with most of the modern wheat because of our focus on high yields. And um, let me show you real quick how that 
works. So for the farmers, they want high yields. Everybody wants high yields. The farmers want them. Bakers want them. Millers want them. For the farmers, that was achieved by making the grain shorter, making it more disease-resistant, insect-resistant, all those, and also able to respond to high um, amounts of chemical fertilizers so that the yields were really increased. The bakers, on the other hand, they wanted to see their small little um, loaves of bread go as high as possible because imagine, the one on the right there, imagine um, selling air for the price of bread (laughs) because that's what you're doing. Um, with all this air in the bread. So they were able to make more bread with less wheat. And uh, that's what they wanted. The way they did that was to change the gluten. So the gluten became more elastic and, and larger molecules and could hold more air before those cells, uh, air cells would rupture. And because those air cells, air cells ruptured, that's why you get the small bread. But if you can have those cells get as big as possible and hold that air without rupturing, then you get the big bread. The problem, of course, is that people have trouble, many people can't uh, digest that, that new gluten very easily. And some of them have extreme problems with it. We also have the problem in the flour mills with white flour being the dominant nature. That means we're throwing away most of the nutrition in our, in our whole, that existed in the wheat kernel. And uh, we're feeding that to the pigs. The pigs are better fed than we are. And uh, when this problem was really understood, they started to fortify the white flour to help reverse a little bit of that. But fortified white flour is nowhere as um, nutritious as whole grain. Um, the other thing that we, that we saw the bakers starting to do was in, in order to make more bread quicker, they used fast-rising yeast. Now, when you do that, the yeast has only time. They only need to give the yeast time to digest the sugar that they add to um, makes the carbon dioxide that raises the bread. This is in opposition to longer fermentations that we used to have and and even longer fermentations with sourdough. In fact, research coming out of Colorado um, states that a 24-hour sourdough fermentation will destroy 97% of all the gluten. That's an amazing amount. And people who have trouble with gluten, if they would eat long fermentations, there's a very big likelihood that they can eat that with much less trouble or maybe no trouble at all. And um, the, the problem with that is, of course, it takes longer. And so there's not a big interest because you can't make so much money, you see, because of banging out those, those bread loaves as quickly as possible. But the health aspect is really a big price to pay for cheap bread, in my mind. And so I think it, there's more and more people starting to um, switch over their emphasis. And some of the bread you had today coming in was is sourdough bread. I don't think it's quite a 24-hour fermentation, but it's certainly way down the road to pre-digesting that gluten and pre-digesting the flour so that your own body doesn't have to do the whole job starting from zero. You start halfway down the line for, for digestion. Um, we also find problems with glyphosate as it becomes more and more uh, found on our breads and in and, and trace amounts in our cereals. It mimics a little bit, for some people, and it's according to research coming out of Canada, the symptoms of wheat sensitivities. Because glyphosate is affecting not our body cells so much, but the bacteria who live inside of us. We have more bacteria than we have human cells. And if we mess with those, they're going to start throwing our health off. And that's what is happening with, with in some cases. So let's go back to our three-legged stool. 
um, we can solve those problems one by one just the way they were created. If the, if the production on the farm goes from highly intensive industrial chemical to regenerative organic, the products coming out of the farm are going to be significantly different and, and more health-promoting than the, the industrial um, products. If in processing and bread making and other processes, if we would focus on retaining or improving, um, enhancing nutrition, then we would not be losing so much nutrition on the processing end. We, the goal is not to lose what the, what the farm has been able to put in. And finally, the seeds, if the plant players would select for nutrition rather than yields, we would have a better focus and we would have less trouble. Um, Organic agriculture, I think, can really reduce the high cost of cheap food. First of all, by giving farmers a fair living, um, a chance to be profitable and support then the, the communities around them, which would revitalize Main Street and bring jobs back to rural America. The planet would be relieved of some of the pollutions that now are coming from agricultural chemical um, excess. And last of all, our health would respond to better food by a reduction in chronic disease. And that would save untold billions. So in summary, I want you to remember a couple things. First of all, you and I, all of us, that is, are co-producers. We really are together in this. Because what you eat affects what we grow. And for this really to work well, we have to know each other, talk to each other, get acquainted, find out what our needs are, and understand how we can encourage each other to really bring out the best goals, meet the best goals from both sides. Our goals as farmers is really have uh, sustainable farms, uh, soils that will last for, for millennia. And uh, your goal is to have food that nourishes you and keeps you healthy and tastes good and is fun to eat. So we can do that together. And that's what I'm encouraging everyone to think about. And so what can you do to realize this future? Well, first of all, I would encourage you all to, and to for you who are already doing this, encourage your friends to just put one more item of organic food in your grocery basket as you go down the aisle. And get a chance to meet a farmer. Go to the farmer's markets and get acquainted and um, talk to your neighbors about the food system that we are in the middle of now and trying to change. The goal is to create something that everybody wins, that makes us feel better, that makes us healthy, that reconnects that really reconnects the idea of food and health. That has been so disconnected because, well, we can go, go buy pills, right? And that takes care of our health. And the food just keeps us alive and, you know, gives us a little energy. But we really need to connect those. They can go together and they should. And I encourage and help and invite all of you to be a part of that. And thank you for coming so much today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. So we have some time for questions. Hi, it's uh, nice to be here today. Um, I have a lot of questions, but uh, one I just wanted to start out with uh, gets to be a thorny one is how you're defining organic. So you led with um, a number of communities around the country and, you know, they were more focused on organic agriculture, which is great. But, you know, my question for folks is always, how are you defining that specifically? How are they farming in an organic? You know, it can be a very wide definition. So I was just curious how you Well, that's a it. very good question. And before the National Organics uh, Standards Board and the National Organic Program was established by the 1990 Farm Bill, every state and every community almost, or group, defined it in their own way. And this was uh, part of the 
frustration because some states defined it one way and some another, and some states didn't have any definition. You could call it whatever you wanted. So the organic community and organic movement came together to try to standardize that in a national organic program. And now it's pretty well defined in law of what organic is. And it has, it's not just a don't do list of things that don't do. It's also a list of do do. And, and uh, at the heart of that is, um, building your soils and building a, re- a sustainable regenerative component. Um, it, the closer we get to that, not everybody does it 100% that way, but the closer we can get to that, the more sustainable organic is going to be and the more uniform it's going to be. Thank you for your presentation. And I'm not a farmer, so uh, please correct whatever I get wrong here. But um, I was interested in both hearing that you had equivalent yields when you uh, tested sort of the chemical mm-hmm. wheat versus the organic wheat. And then you had your um, nine-year rotation of crops that included a number of years where you're not growing wheat. Mm-hmm. If a majority of the U.S. food supply or wheat supply, um, heaven knows about corn, but if it switched over to organic, would there be sufficient capacity to grow the food that we need? That's a really good question. I'm really glad you asked that because that's one of the criticisms we get with organic all the time. Well, if we all go organic, which third of the world are you going to choose to go hungry? But uh, I'm not the only one that has seen the average yields for organic be about the same as average county yields for chemical. Um, Rodale um, Institute in Pennsylvania has done a 30-year study, and they've come up with that same conclusion. And they're, they're in an area where it rains. Uh, we're in an area where it doesn't. And um, if the this really holds true, I mean, that's what – and other people have reported this too. So if we're looking at average yields, we're never as high as the highest when it's a lot of rain, but we're a lot above the lowest when it's a drought because our soils are more resilient. They hold more moisture, and they're the last ones to to drought out. And so we're still harvesting when our chemical neighbors have zero. And so that's where some of the averages come out. Our, our highs and lows are a little closer together from their extremes. But the averages are pretty close to the same. So we would have the same amount of food as an average across the board. But people say, well, what about the rest of the world? Isn't the chemical, uh, industrial, uh, biotech here to feed the world? Because that's what we're told every day in all the major newspapers and advertisements that we see. But if you look at really who's feeding the rest of the world, Two-thirds of the world's population lives in Asia. If you add Africa, now you're up to three-quarters of the world's population. That population, most of that population is fed by small farms right within their communities. And research coming out of both India and Africa have demonstrated that if those small farms would convert to organic principles, mostly of adding some rotations and some soil building components of some sort, they would increase their use two to three times. Um, the chemical model doesn't fit that. Uh, the problem with exporting chemicals to the underdeveloped nations is who's going to pay for them? The, the local farmers certainly can't. And, and yet the... The, uh, as I explained in our situation, you actually can reduce your input costs. They're, they don't have so many input costs in the beginning, but if they grow their own inputs, they can, for very little extra t- changes, they can double their, their cropping um, yields, and that can feed the world. So I'm, I'm um, very, in, very optimistic about organic feeding the world and, and taking the, the whole picture into consideration. 
Hello there. Um, how is your grain different from teff? Oh, well, teff is um, a very small uh, seed that's not really in the wheat family, and so it's not a wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ancient grain that we're working with is really a wheat, and it's a very close relative to um, Durham. Right. And so it's a tetraploid, if you're <coughs> familiar with how the wheat <coughs> excuse me, families are divided between uh, on the number of chromosomes they have. Uh, they have uh, chromosomes in the, in the most simplest kinds, one set from each parent. Einkorn is an example of that. Uh, they're diploids. The tetraploids have two sets from each parent, which is a little unusual. We don't, most of the animal kingdom doesn't have that, or plant kingdom either. And in examples of that are emmer and durum. And then uh, another group has three sets from each parent. They're hexaploids. And that group contains our bread wheats, and spelt is in that group. So that's how they differentiate themselves in the, in the wheat family. But teff is a completely different um, um, group of grain. As a consumer, how do I get hold of your wheat? Uh, you can find it in any health food store. So we um, don't do not, except for those snacks that are out there, that's the first, um, uh, the Kamut Crunchies are the first um, retail product we actually have done off our farm. We, my philosophy was to find the best manufacturers I could and let them do what they could do best, and I try to do what I could do best, which is be a farmer. And so if you look for Nature's Path, all their heritage cereals are mostly Kamut. Um, Eden Foods has Kamut pasta. Bob's Red Mill has uh, flour, grain, and uh, crack uh, Kamut for hot cereal. And uh, there are several others that have smaller amounts, but those three main ones are found in almost every health food store. Where do perennial grains fit in this picture? That's really a good question. So perennial grains. I'm growing some myself and experimenting with Kernza. And um, uh, as you know, the Land Institute's real big on that. And um, we've grown it for three years. This is our third year that we're going coming into. And uh, I think it has some really interesting potential. The, the kernels that they have now are quite small, and the yields aren't very big. But um, and we haven't really had a chance to see for ourselves what the, the bread-making qualities or other nutritional factors are. But if we can have more crops that are perennial that we're not tilling the ground or, um, and having them successful, then we're really mimicking the prairie more and more. And I think that's great. Our question is, you know, will it really work and how will it work best? And we're thinking that it might also have a, a good role as a forage in addition to a, um, a, gr- a grain crop. So I think as far as the perfection of it, we're still, working, we're still working on that. We're not there yet, but it's a good direction to go, in my opinion. Yes. Thank you, Bob. Um, you know, the fast food international conglomerates have such an amazing uh, food distribution system in place right now. Yes. And many Americans visit, I won't name names, but we know the names. Can you suggest ideas about how to bridge the gap between the kind of specialist interests, you know, people who go to organic stores and the masses who eat at any of these big places? How are we going to get your products into a drive-through restaurant? <laughs> well, I want to buy something in a drive-through restaurant that you or your peers have grown. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> we need to go to where the people are, right? I'm really not a fan of drive through restaurants, I have to tell you. Um, when I was at a food show in um, Las Vegas here a couple of years ago, 
the there was a big report on the on the latest greatest um, growth in breads was the wrap. You know why? The wrap was so great and growing because it was a food you could eat with one hand and drive with the other. And I thought, oh, man. I spent a lot of time in Italy, and it's just the opposite, you know. And I think, oh, man, why don't we, why don't we sit down as friends and family and enjoy a meal? And I think it's better on the digestion. Um, and so anyway, that's a whole different slant. Um, so I th- I'm hoping that we will come back to a little bit more of enjoying meals together and enjoying each other's company together. I mean, we don't even hardly meet anybody anymore with cell phones. You don't have to talk to anybody and, and texting and all this stuff. Um, I think we need to, I'd like to see that social movement come back to the table. But the other question, other part of your question is, how do we really grow from 5%? We're at 5% right now. So after 30 years of a lot of effort, we've gone from almost zero to 5% of the food in America is now organic. And, and now it's not just in the specialty shops. I mean, Walmart has organic. Costco has organic um, sections, you just say. If that 5% continues to grow at the rate it's growing now, which is over 10%, but if we just use 10% for easy math in our heads, in 30 years, we're going to be at 100%. So my new jingle is chemical-free by 53. <laughs> and... Um, if it takes 30 years to get there, I think we can evolve into it. This is not a crash program. And um, you, every time you have a crash program, you have a lot of dysfunction and disconnect. But if we would go at 10% a year is not a huge amount. Although when you get close to the end, it, it, it's growing quite fast. But I think that if people, and this is where you and your friends come in, if everybody just starts to buy a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, it'll evolve. And if we keep going at this rate, it will work. And people in every level will figure out how to make it work. Thank you, Bob. We have time for just one last question. Okay. Hi. Um, I have been hearing um, sort of rumblings about uh, the current organic standards and pushing beyond that and trying to have a regenerative ag certification mm-hmm. or the Real Organic Project. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious if you're involved with those efforts or what your opinions are about sort of pushing beyond organic certification and, and having some, some other type of certification that, that really, um, yeah, goes that's back a, to that. That's a really good question. Um, when I was on the first Organic Standards Board, my hope and vision was that USDA would form a, a floor for what organic would mean and allow for an evolution or a, um, a continuing improvement because that's what we had been doing up to that point with individual sort of certification bodies. I was part of OCIA, which is the Organic Crop Improvement Association. We were in, in uh, we had CCOF here in California, and probably a half a dozen very strong certifiers, and everybody was kind of jockeying for um, physician by trying to improve. As we learn more things, we can say, okay, we don't need that chemical or that any uh, product anymore, we can say that's no longer going to be allowed in the, the organic uh, production. With the formation of the national uh, program, however, we ended up with a floor and a ceiling, and they were the same. And so to change that, and there still is ways to change it, but it is so small and so difficult, 
Um, and what we have seen recently, and you talked about the um, the advent of uh, like the regenerative um, group coming, Rodale's leading that, and the real organic group coming from friends of mine in Vermont, but both of them spreading throughout the country, is a frustration in that some of the things that the overwhelming uh, majority of the uh, people in the organic movement did not approve of or did not agree with, like confined animal operations, are actually now being allowed. A hydroponics is now being allowed without label. Uh, to me, hydroponics is more of a processing uh, facility. Um, I don't think it, it's, it's uh, valuable to debate if there's soil or not involved. Of course, there's not. But they're not using any chemicals uh, to grow their products, but it's more like a factory. So why don't we label it as a processor? And have it have it labeled as hydroponically grown or whatever, um, and have something so that we can continue to reduce the chemical load on the whole planet. But a, a lot of people, and there's a lot of debate and a lot of frustration when um, some of those practices that we thought were could be banned are now being allowed, and that's giving spawn to these additional labels. So most of these groups are saying the USDA label is our is our ground our baseline, and um, I think we should be happy and thankful about that because it's well-recognized and there's a lot of good work gone into it. But for those who don't want to really stop there and want to say, okay, we are also focusing on grass-fed animal production and egg production, and we want to have the, our label mean that too, um, and soil regenerative stuff, because theoretically you can have an organic farm that's bringing in all of its inputs. It's, to me, it's more like an industrial model. So you've just substituted organic uh, inputs for chemical inputs, and it, and it's not the soil isn't being regenerative, regenerated in the way that it would be if you're growing cover crops and and the things that I was showing you earlier. So there's a big debate about that, and I think it's too bad that we're sp- splintering out. I would re- really like to see all of those groups come together as one and say, okay, this is what we think we can go forward, but not have not end up with so many labels. I think. We have lots more than we already need, and we don't need a whole bunch more. But to have an indication of, of somebody saying, okay, that my dairy is coming from um, grass-fed cows, that's really important marketing information and health information now, too. We know that the milk from grass-fed cows is more nutritious than those coming from confined grain-fed operations. So th- th- many of these things are based in, in not only in soil um, health, but also food health. And any of the rest of you have any questions, we're going to be here for a little bit. If you'd like to um, visit afterwards, we'd be glad to do that or sign any of the books that you'd like to get. And thank you so much for being here and being a part of our discussion. Thank you to Bob Quinn and Liz Carlisle. And now this program, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food, comes to an end. <laughs>